I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic for The Wall Street Journal. I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli, and I write for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and Newsday. And I'm Peter Marks, drama critic for The Washington Post. Welcome to episode 46. Yes, really, episode 46. 46. We think. We think. No, it is 46. <laughs> yes, it is 46. Of Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. We are not here to discuss when the new decade actually starts. We are entering a new, de a new year and a new decade, and that is the end of that. Therefore, <laughs> we thought it would be a good time to look back at the year that was, but as fun as top 10 lists can be, you might well have seen quite a few of them already. Yeah. So we decided to go adopt a different tack, uh, and we're going to go over some, some trends and, and themes and things that have struck us as being meaningful or different or, or depressing <laughs> or worth getting excited about. <laughs> and we each picked one right. uh, that we all will uh, discuss together, and I hope this will prompt some good mail. Too. Yeah, because we'd be curious to think to, to see what you think if you wanted to add a, a thought of your own on what might have seemed to you or you perceive to be a really interesting uh, development or trend that sort of revealed itself in the past year, but maybe not just in the past year. Right. We're really ready to empty the mailbag. So please feel free to chime in after you listen to what follows. And, and we, uh, you know, we often in our jobs, you know, we are trend spotters by by definition, in a sense. And so uh, we don't always get to, though, elucidate in, in, in a way that where we could talk with our peers about whether they agree that these things are indeed trends. Uh, we're often sort of alone in our, at our computers coming up with these things for editors who, you know, agree or disagree. But then again, we don't really talk it through with other critics to see what mm -hmm. they what their perceptions of these are. And, and with theater goers. I mean, and with no, theater goers. I mean, although I don't want to make the distinction between critics and theater goers since we are theater goers, but I think you, you know Well, we I mean. can, you know, civilians. We've been known we to see a play from time to time. <laughs> right. So, so, all right, so I'll go first with what I think has been the most important trend in American theater, not just this past year, but the last few years. And that for me, and I've not talked about this for the first time here, uh, but for me, it has been the emergence of a entire uh, cadre of black playwrights, African-American playwrights, who've really been allowed, thank God, to, to uh, express themselves on a variety of stages in a variety of cities. Uh, this feels to me, maybe with the uh, emergence on Broadway of Slave Play, a very controversial play by Jeremy O'Harris, but nonetheless, a play that one could not have imagined coming to Broadway even five years ago, I think, uh, is sort of, to me, uh, very meaningful and, and signals a, a sea change in the way producers and um, artistic directors are thinking about the uh, what kinds of stories we are going to hear. I'm just going to mention some names quickly. Michael R. Jackson, Jackie Sibley's Drury, Antoinette Nwandu, Jocelyn Bio. You go then to Alicia Harris, and of course some older players, maybe slightly older players like Dominique Marceau, Brendan Jacobs Jenkins, Lydia Diamond, Lynn Nottage. I mean, it goes on and on. I do think that what's happening here is a recognition uh, by uh, American theater makers that it's not okay to just have one black voice in your season uh, or opening on February. <laughs> it's a it's and also these playwrights are you know dealing so substantially with identity in a way that gives the, them the stage. And you know, for a, for a a large white audience and a majority of white critics, you know, approaching this work is a really uh, interesting and multi-layered challenge. I think uh, uh, it it I think it provokes the you know what might be the next possibility, which is you know a rise of more black critics. There are some, but you know, I think that's we need more. Uh, critics of color in general to respond to this work. Um, it, it, and the work does present challenges to middle-aged white critics who don't have the 
cultural background necessarily to relate to every experience that they're seeing. But of course, that's what theater has always meant to be. It's it's meant to give voice to people who are showing you other corners of the culture. Well, Things of course, by, the, by far the most important thing about slave play is simply that it ran on Broadway. Because they don't put shows on Broadway unless they think they're going to make some money. Right. Uh, and that's a big thing. When you think that a show like that is potentially, on some level, a commercial draw, uh, you're saying something very important about the state of American theater. I mean, you don't normally think of Broadway as, in any sense, a leading edge for what's happening in theater. So when a show like that gets to a place like that, something interesting is going on. I, I, what's interesting to me, and I think it, it, uh, it calls back to something that we had discussed, uh, I think actually it was not on the show, but it was like in other conversations. And the, the, Peter, I think you had mentioned the, the acknowledgement, the emergence. Well, emergence makes it sound like it's new, but it's, you know, the kind of like emergence into the mainstream, let's right. say, of what you had called the black gaze. And of course, this is, you know, refers like in film there's been a lot of talk about the male gaze and the female the emergence of the female gaze right uh because that conversation of course is going in, into happening in other art forms mm -hmm. and i feel like you you're right that, that the emergence of the the black gaze the the acknowledgement that there is a different perspective a different way to look at things and at people and at institutions and at mechanisms social mechanisms and political mechanisms feels different now. I And also one of the things that we mentioned on the show before, but a lot of those plays are very formally, very daring. Right. It's not just like, oh, hey, look, there's a black Neil Simon. Well, Although that would be great too. <laughs> well, that's it. I do think if you look at like um, the uh, African schoolgirl, the, the, right. the Mean Girls play, right. that's an example of a play that mm -hmm. uh, is taking a very whimsical uh, look at a interesting sort of sociological phenomenon mm -hmm. uh, that that's not just American but is global in mm -hmm. terms of uh, beauty contests. Right, in a uh, very accessible way, actually. In a very that's... comedic, in a very yes, yeah. exactly, in a very almost conventional way, mm -hmm. uh, which is refreshing. I and I think that when you look at musicals like A Strange Loop, which they're now touting for, I've heard sort of whispers. Really? Well, I, I'm online. Oh, wow. People are starting to advocate for it. Um, and you see things like Fairview or Passover, uh, those plays or um, uh, Is God Is or What to Send Up When It Goes Down. These plays are, you know, they're all, as you say, they're breaking the form, too. Mm -hmm. They're not just, uh, they're, they, have, they have multiple levels in which audiences should be seeing them and enjoying them. Well, something you were touching on, Elizabeth, a moment ago. I look to theater to tell me things and show me things that I didn't know about. Mm -hmm. And when a playwright comes along who's opening a new door for me, it's very exciting. One, for me, one of the most recent examples of that is the work of Lydia Diamond, uh, who just keeps throwing open new and unexpected doors. Suddenly, we get a play about the black upper middle class. Some Suddenly, we get a play about uh, the Negro baseball leagues. I mean, this is not just like a vitamin pill of perspective. Right. It's somebody who's telling you a story about a world you probably didn't know anything about. Mm. There's a pretty good chance that if you're a black person who's 25 years old, you don't know anything about the Negro baseball leagues either. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is one of the things that theater can do that that maybe no other art form does it well as well is that it dramatizes new ways of looking new ways of seeing and uh uh this is a good area to have that happening in and, and i i love that actually that the playing field is becoming wide enough that there is space for quote like more conventional and i don't mean that in a bad way at all like uh dramatically conventional I don't know if there's a better way to put that, but like Lynn Nottage or, or Dominic Morisot work within a style that's a little bit more, that is not as formally boundary pushing as some of the yeah, others. What's but, wrong with that? That's great. No, no, yeah, but yeah. what I'm saying, it's yeah. great that there's like the space for this now. I love that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of a play that Brandon Jacobs Jenkins did a few years ago called Appropriate, mm -hmm. which in right. which he really did appropriate white voices he mm -hmm. made it's a play without a black character it's entirely white voices and uh the interesting thing it brings up is it, it's also you know remarkable when you think about how for how long white writers have felt it in their um 
uh, avenue of uh, ability to channel black voices. I mean, even mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, sure. To Kill a Mockingbird, right. this is written by a white novelist and adapted by a white playwright. Uh, but we're, st you know, the idea is sort of subversive and disruptive to have a black playwright uh, doing it in white voices. I mean, not, not the first time ever, right. but I wonder if we're going to ever get to a point, you know, at what point does this all transition to, we're all writing about everybody, you know, how much groundwork has to be laid, how much claim has to be made to the authenticity of an experience? Uh, is it a matter of time? Does it transpire over time that we, we then allow other writers back in to talk in the voices of of people not from their own cultures? I mean, are we in some sort of, you know? No, no, the work I, the work is its own challenge. I mean, now I'm speaking as somebody uh, exactly. who, who wrote a play. A, 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 Indeed. A play about Louis Armstrong. Indeed. And didn't think twice about it. Right. Uh, and wouldn't now, uh, because nobody else was doing it. Well, also, you had written a biography right, I written a bi of them. I, I'd had, done the work. tremendous it, it agency, like, as they say. Yeah, it wasn't like a piece of opportunism. But right. the, the point is, you, if you do something compelling, it is its own justification. And if you do something fresh and original, I mean, we're not fresh and original. We're, we're, we're going to talk a little later about comedy. But I'm ready to see a, a six-door door-slamming farce where all the characters are black. Wouldn't you love that? I would Can't love that. Can't you imagine that? What, what, I, I would love that. I, would, I really would. Um, what, what do you guys think of uh, plays and, and productions where uh, the playwrights and, and the director directly confront uh, the, the white, audience? The yeah, white audience right. members, and I'm referring specifically here to Alicia uh, Alicia Harris's "What to Send Up When It Goes Down," right. which I think is coming back. To, it is. It's got another... the under the radar. It's coming back. I think. Oh, right, yeah. right. It's, it's, I think it's been done like in a lot of places. It was done in and, Washington. And yeah. just to to summarize very, very, very roughly, at the end of the of the show, the um, the cast asked the white audience members to leave the room, and there's something. It's about police brutality, right, the police right. killing of black uh, civilians. Right. And the audience is split into at the end. So, well, being white, I was outside and we got a speech from one of the actors and then we could hear like some faint noises coming in from inside. I have no idea what happened inside. Well, I do have an idea because I looked at the script, but otherwise I would not know. And what do you, I think some people were really turned off by that. I thought it was an interesting I don't know. It seems very challenge. 60s to me, it, that kind it of confrontational does, but theater. Why not? Yeah, I think as a one-off experience, it's it's an interesting idea. I thought in Fairview, they spun it in another direction, which oh, was the God, white yeah. audience. Well, the white audience was invited on the stage, mm -hmm. and people of color sat in the in the in the stayed in their seats. It was brutal the night I saw it, by the way, yeah. and the brutal reactions, the verbally brutal reactions, were from African American audience members who really took exception to the yeah. device. Well, that's so. the other thing about having yeah. more critics of color is that, you know, I feel like sometimes we are not perfectly uh, positioned to examine all the aspects of which of the pl of the play that might give us pause. It's a little bit harder sometimes given the certainly it, given the material. And you know what's great? I mean, I will take that as possibly the greatest compliment to uh, Jeremy O'Harris that um, Slave play, when it was off-Broadway, there was a petition circulating asking to close the show because uh, it was called, and I quote, anti-black sentiment disguised as art. So yeah, well, the petition was, was signed by mostly black, black folks. Because they heard the, the, the first yeah. part of the play was a right. reenactment Mostly of without having seen it. And then when it was on Broadway, there was, I guess, a, a talk back after a show and, and a white or Caucasian looking, mm -hmm. from what I read, uh, audience member, uh, took exception and said it was uh, the play <laughs> displayed anti-white racism. So it's amazing that it can be interpreted in this widely different... Nine-tenths of the people who criticize uh, art is bad, haven't seen it, don't know anything about it. Well, at least it. the woman was at They're the talkback, so yeah. we know she had seen it. She well, was there. It's, but, it, but, you know... But I mean, it's, it's true that mostly people have not seen the stuff. They're reacting to something that they heard, which on some level may or may not be true, mm -hmm. but... 
You know, they haven't engaged right. with it. And sometimes, you know, you can do that. Sometimes you know that something's no good, but yeah, I th- maybe I, not. I think that the play is actually ending its engagement in January. I mm-hmm. think it's January 19th, if I'm not mistaken. So it'll have run its entire limited engagement. I consider it a success <laughs> mm-hmm. that it made it this far, presumably did okay. I don't know if it actually made paid back Sure, its yeah, I don't know. But the fact that it, you know, it's such an encouraging sign, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, he's got to feel really good. Of course, he's a master of publicity himself and, and tireless at promoting the play, which I think has probably, you know, done some good. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's made it sort of a play that people feel like they've got to be able to talk about. Mm-hmm. So all that's been very Positive. Not every playwright has that. But going back to your other uh, notion of this, 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 you know, it is sort of a stunt. Obviously, I think if you pull that too many times, sure, it, it becomes it, it runs yeah. out of steam very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, but I kind of was titillated by it. I liked it because I hadn't uh, seen it in, um, before mm-hmm. uh, done quite this way, and I liked the it turning me on my head, sort of right. speak. Yeah. But that's but that's me. Some people are are very threatened mm-hmm. by. Not only plays that single them out as white, but also plays that are about black people. I mean, I've had people, you know, email me after I write about, and the, and there's all this disguised racism in their in their you know critiques of my critiques. Oh, really? Like what kind of like? Well, there's you know, it's it's always couched in language oh. that um, makes it seem like you know, you know, either it'll bring up. Obama, or, oh. you know, I mean, it's always <laughs> referencing things that make oh, you, you get all the good mail. Yeah, uh, yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, uh, Washington Post sits on the border of the Mason. You know, I mean, yeah. there's the South, not too far right. away, and some of those people go to. Um, uh, I I had one person. Well, I had one person complain to me about. Um, uh, My fair lady, because there is a scene in Get Me to the Church on Time. They have men dressed as women. Oh, right, right. And people, there are parts of the country where that still, on a stage, strikes them as, you know, as offensive. Anyway, that said, I do think, to sum up, I do think that it's an incredibly encouraging sign that this is, this has momentum, that that this number of playwrights are out there and, you know, clearly getting positive reinforcement for what they do, and they're going to move on to subjects that... Challenge us in different ways. It's not just going to be, you know, it, as they mm-hmm. as they develop a, more of a of a of a uh, um, yeah. of a canon themselves. Mm-hmm. Now let's yeah. shift the spotlight to something that I think, in a sense, has already happened, and that we're simply recognizing that it has come to pass. Um, the Wall Street Journal asked uh, its critics to write trends of the decade pieces for the paper. And what I wrote about, one of the things I wrote about, was the rise of women playwrights and directors, not just in New York, but throughout America. This is what I wrote. American theater is now well on the way to becoming a woman's game. Were I to draw up a list of noted under 60 American playwrights, it would include, just for starters, Annie Baker, Lydia R. Diamond, Katori Hall, Kate Hamill, Amy Herzog, Chiara Alegria Hudis, Zoe Kazan, Susan Laurie Parks, Lynn Nottage, and Sarah Rule. The same is true of stage directors. Most of the names on my own short list of top directorial talent, among them Lear de Bessonette, Amanda Dennert, Marpa Gaines, Pam McKinnon, Bonnie J. Monte, Lila Neugebauer, Charlotte Moore, Anna D. Shapiro, Lee Silverman, Jessica Stone, Jen Thompson and Kate Wariski. Whoa, you really did research. Two women. <laughs> I didn't have to. I, I, I like the alphabetical order. Yes, he did in alphabetical order. And, and the playwrights are not all playwrights whose work I like. But mm-hmm. the point is that the hot names, I think, especially in directing now, increasingly are women. And it is something that we are coming to take for granted. That's a very big deal. It's not something that I even think about anymore in terms of women. I just realized about a year ago that most of the directors who interest me most in the United States were women. And uh, a decade ago, I would not have said that. Maybe I should have, but I wouldn't have. But I think a lot of people, especially if they thought about it, look back on their own best of lists, are going to come up with rather similar lists. What do you guys think? Hmm. Well, uh, 
I will say that interestingly, uh, I have to point to no less uh, an authoritative source as Michelle Williams uh, on the Golden Globes. <laughs> if you watch, if you watched her, she talked about how uh, in that you know that that the female voice is the majority majority voice in this country, just in numbers, and that. But but her more interesting observation was that you know we all see the world through men's perspectives because men have always been the ones who claimed the right to tell the stories they had the checkbook they had the ch they had the power yeah. and i do think that it is changing it's still in it's uh, I, you know it's still in transition in places like uh, in regional theater for example i think it's still women are not quite at parity in terms of directing and and writing uh, slots it's, but I mean, I don't think that's what you were speaking to. I think no. you were talking to the the talent pool right. and what's happening in terms of, you know, this comes only a few short years after a big controversy in which people said, uh, some artistic directors said that, you know, in the pipeline, there were no female writers or not enough female playwrights, which, you know, caught an uproar. And I think, you know, led to the Gilroys and other kinds of uh, mm -hmm. recognition of people who needed to point out that this is not the case. But the fact that Terry Teachout, but the fact that Terry Teachout at the Wall Street Journal is is making this uh, observation is hugely important in terms of reinforcing that notion. I just take it for granted now. I don't. Well, I don't think twice about it. Yes, I realize that there could be more women doing X, doing Y, doing Z, but I take it for granted that. If you're looking at the top talent, it's just as likely to be women as men. So I, I do agree with that, but I think there's still a huge problem in that women are very, very underrepresented where the money is, and that's on Broadway. Right. That They're just not there. That is just no doubt about it. Uh, no matter what you think of Paula Vogel, for instance, that it took her that long to get onto Broadway when... And I feel like I'm repeating, I always say the same thing, but like the right. bar is so much lower for guys. Mm -hmm. It's so much lower for them to get on Broadway. Well, like it's, how it's... long did it take Lynn Nottage and Paula Vogel? And again, regardless of what you think of them, you know, you don't have right. to, but just in terms of stature and body of work and what they have to say, I'm sorry, but there are like really no comparison between them and some guys that I will not mention because I've mentioned them before right. and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but... Um, so that's the problem Broadway in playwrights will, and directors. Broadway will always be slow. It is always the safe place, the place where people are out to make money and therefore they're going to make the safe choices. But as they realize that choosing certain kinds of women can indeed be, safe is not the right word here, it can be a profitable choice. That is what is going to to move the needle and is starting to move the needle. I mean, you're, I think you're going to very quickly reach a point where people will realize that Lynn Nottage is somebody who writes plays that ordinary folks want to see. Yeah, but she's been doing it for 15 years. Sure, of course I mean, she has. I mean, of course like, she has. The needle is moving really slowly. Like that, some of us are like, think that that fucking needle is like really stuck in like way to the much to the left of the dial. But it's always been that way on Broadway. It always will be that way on Broadway. Well, I'd the, rather I mean, the, the not think to, that it will but, always be that way on Broadway. I might as well like... All oh, right. Just, here's, and here's Broadway the, will always be slow is what I mean. Oh, he, oh, here's right. an irony. Do you know, I mean, 70% of the tickets on Broadway are purchased by women? Right. I know. I, I, you know, it's I, not that not everything has to be, you know, no one's going to check the list every right. time they buy a ticket to see who wrote it, and who, you know, who directed it. But it's it's, you know, it's fascinating to think <laughs> that, you know, that's where all the support. You know, what kills me is that women buy 70 percent of tickets and then the big issue is like, we need to get more guys to go on Broadway. So we're going to do plays about the <laughs> Yankees yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and Larry Bird, like. And and that dude from the Packers, I forget his name now, but anyway, the Lombardi, Vince yeah, Lombardi, three that trilogy, dude from the Packers. that dude from the Packers. But seriously, we're like, no, yeah. no, we're not gonna try to find stuff that may interest the women who buy tickets. We're gonna try to find stuff for the guys who don't go to the theater, so we can lure them. Oh my God! Well, all, all the more reason why Lydia Diamond's Tony Stone is such an interesting and important play. Right, it's a sports play about a black woman. Uh, written by one. Surprise, everybody. It's a good show. It's a fun show. Oh, my God. Uh, and well, I'm working on a 
very uh, elaborate drama about uh, ski star uh, Michaela Schifrin. And <laughs> oh, oh. it's going to be uh, at the Winter Garden. Some staging it's, issues. It's here. a musical and it's coming to the Winter Garden. Oh, right, right. Winter Garden, you get it? Uh, in 2028. <laughs> it's, it's called Slalom Street, I think. Isn't yes, it? That's exactly what yeah, it is. Yeah. It's the working title. I got it. I'm still looking for a, a musician, but I think uh, David Yazbek may be interested. But you know, it's. <laughs> He's always interested. David Yasbeck's always interested. Drop that. Oh my God! It's going yeah. to show up. Anyway, on... so that's that's my plan. But, for... but uh, you know, but interestingly, and maybe this. So here's think of these two shows, okay? Two musicals, War Paint, and oh. and Waitress, okay? Right. Uh -huh. One both about women. That is a great example, right? Yeah. One did not make it. The other soared. Yes. What was the difference? In terms is of who wrote it, <laughs> you're waiting for my answer, or are you gonna? Well, like, I, yeah, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm, I was gonna say, you know, war paints what? by men. Yes, and they never Although talk the book, to I each other. The women, the women in the show, never talk to each yeah. other. I told a friend the thing with war paint. It's about these two women who were rivals. Well, okay, so they were rival. Right. They never Until the in end. the show. The have, a, have a number together. It's like I, that's true. Friend, that it, was perverse. It would be like watching a movie that would be entirely in a split in a split screen. But Waitress, which didn't get much better reviews than War Paint did, right? Had a, a an extraordinary run on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary. Yeah. I don't know. My point being, <laughs> I think that you know, I mean, Sarah Burrell's was writing about women in a way she understood mm -hmm. much more. Right. Sort of, I think. Directly, <laughs> not that every you know musical, but it says to me, you know, and look, and look at look at Hades Town. Look how well it's. This oh is, that, no, let let's not look at. I'm I'm just saying there's <laughs> you know clearly there's talent out there. I'm, no, I'm I know. talking about musicals because musicals are the lifeblood of Broadway. Uh, oh, and also I really hope women don't think that they can only write about women. I mean, I would be perfectly fine, uh, you know, with having women write a show about like, I don't know, the stage adaptation of 1917 yeah. and it's fine, but... Um, yeah, 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 of course. I mean, I, you know, I... Oh, look at War Horse. I mean, we're talking was... about, you know, 51% of the population, so it's right. a little bit like, it's yes. hard to sort of like re wrestle this to a to a, 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 a narrow definition. No, of you know what they did at, at Waitress is that they were piping in that pie smell oh, in the true. theater and I know, every true. time that's... I walked by, I had the impulse to go buy a ticket. Yeah. That was just... And, and, and you <laughs> really? went 13 times. The Pavlovian <laughs> technique yeah. of Absolutely. theatrical marketing. I actually had one of those pies, by the way. Wasn't that great? Well, you don't, you know, I was, I, I was thinking about this. We don't, generally speaking, I don't think that most people go to a show because of who directed it. No. Much less, oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, much I, less no. will they go to it because it was directed by a woman. They will go because of what they hear right. about mm -hmm. what it's sure. about. Absolutely. Sure. And, uh, Waitress is, in fact, the quintessential example. It's a, it's, it's a women empowerment musical. Mm -hmm. And when people are told what it's about, they say, oh, that, I mean, a woman is likely to say, oh, that sounds interesting. I'd like to see that. Mm -hmm. um, that's a different proposition. That is, that is the question of how do shows become really popular? Um, the choice of director contributes to it. It's sort of like the fertilizer from which the show grows. So when you have women directors making artistic decisions about productions, it's, it's part of what leads to the thing that pops out from the dirt and everybody says, oh, this is something I'd like to and, go and And you see. know, also what I think will be a great progress is when we can really pile on and trash shows directed by women because we're not petite flowers who need to be protected from bad reviews. And I like that Jagged Little Pill didn't get great reviews. I actually liked it a lot more than I expected to like it. Right. Much to my surprise. Right. Uh, but um, I like that he, I mean, I think it's fair game. Like my thing is like women will really have made it when we can afford to be as mediocre as guys. All right, and on that note, okay, my turn. What's yours, Elizabeth? My, my uh, as listeners may know, I love comedies. I love them. I love film comedies. I love comedies of all kinds. And I do not understand why playwrights don't write more comedies. Because and this is no time for, for comedy. I know. Well, so there's plenty of, of plays with very funny lines. I mean, our, our guest, Tracy Letts, um, yeah. writes very funny dialogue it can be really hilarious and a play like like bad juice for instance 
was also very funny. Uh, but it's a kind of mean and dark humor. Hand and, to God. Yeah, hand to God also yeah. very funny. Um, but there's there's not that much of that if you think about it. And like uh, David Ives come to mind uh, comes to totally. mind. Totally. Uh, School for Lies. What? Oh my God! I laughed so much at that. But totally missing from Broadway. And there is no Neil Simon today. So I think that whoever writes a good rom com, a good stage rom com, or a good stage version, not an adaptation, but like a, a, a play, kind of like Bridesmaids, that person is going to clean up yeah. because there's nothing like that. Why is this not happening? And and I was reminded of that because I, I recently interviewed Charles Bush, of whom I'm a huge fan, and he's one of the few who still writes those big comedies. And that's what he wants to do. That's, that's what he does. That's what he does best. And he's very aware of that. Um, and like, what is the problem? One of the things that he said, one of his theories is that um, when you are at a comedy now, the go-to critique is that, oh, it's, it's, it's too sitcomish. You say that's pretty much what you say. I mean, every time you write something funny that just wants to be funny, people say it's just like a sitcom. And it's such a put down and it's used for everything. And he thinks that it's, well, not the reason, but one of the reasons that comedies kind of frowned upon. I don't know, what is it that they don't teach in MFA programs now that people are so adverse to it? It's just like, yeah. it bothers me. Well, I'm struck that we have never had a playwright in this country like Alan Eggburn. Uh, and Eggburn himself is not nearly as popular in the United States as, as he could be, although he gets done a surprising amount in the regions. But uh, Broadway revivals of his work are comparatively uncommon. David Ives has never been able to break through the Broadway barrier except with the, uh, the Mark Twain adaptation. These are people who know how to write funny, funny that just makes you want to bang your head against the, the back of the seat in front of you. Uh, well, of course, it's all in the end of the beholder because I don't find Alan Eggburn funny at all, but <laughs> we can, that's another discussion. I, I, I think that, you know, I think, for example, uh, Saturday Night Live may be responsible for the fact that we no longer have Broadway comedy, big Oh, that's Broadway interesting. Tell, say interesting. more about that. Well, we've laughed for too long at the, at, at the conventions of these forms. Uh, we've, we've, we've turned mocking and parody into the mainstays of what are, what, how we look at comedy. When you get comedy on Broadway, you mostly get, for example, Mike Birbiglia, or hello, remember hello, oh hello. Oh my God, I love that. But yes, I you see. get you get yeah. distinctive voices mm -hmm. that um, are are sensibilities. They don't necessarily play out. With Larry David comes to to Broadway with a comedy. Suddenly, all that that stuff that worked in his on on TV in episodic TV doesn't work on a stage, even though it's very similar in terms of the style. You know, uh, you know, and look at what happens when playwrights like David Mamet try to write <gasps> parody or comedy. You know, oh I mean, it's, you know, I mean, he did a play called November with Nathan Lane oh that really God. didn't. Um, that, wait, that, that was a comedy? Uh, exactly. <laughs> it was that billed was... as one. Well, I'm just, I, I think that, that, that as a, you know, it's almost like the whole culture has, has left this form uh, has gone. Is it's we we're no longer able to sort of receive, sort of the structure of comedies, old style comedy, as being um, uh, truly something we can laugh at. It's almost like we're too. We've got we're, we're it's too postmodern for us. Right. Real comedy is not about comedy. It's about life, and until people want to write plays about how life is funny and absurd and about how the things that happen to us are absurd instead of writing comedy about uh, how a certain kind of genre is amusing or comedy that's based on references where you're supposed to laugh out loud when somebody's name is mentioned that's not comedy that's something else yeah um, and i think that you know when you watch it when when you see what comedy works on television for example veep um, which is brilliantly right. funny uh, and so extreme in terms of the language mm -hmm. and uh, or even even a succession, which I think is, you know, I think really is a comedy, ultimately, oddly enough. Um, but as I said, like a very dark one. But a and dark one. Acceptable, yeah. But and also remember, I think also the visual is tied so powerfully into comedy now that you it's it's hard to, to isolate language as um, beyond kind of the um, 
you know, the setup, the skit kind of setup or the, or the stand-up setup, I don't think people hear it the same way. It's just not, I mean, and I've seen, look, I saw a, a production of You Can't Take It With You on Broadway several years ago. Oh, right, yeah. I didn't like it. It felt stale. Oh, really? I really liked it. Yeah, I know. Well, see, but I don't, and that one was considered successful. That right, was a cons- right. Success, I mean, the front page was on Broadway a couple of years ago, which I actually liked. Oh, but that, okay, that one I didn't like. I, yeah. I, I think it's just too... Right. Specific, I think we've become so. Uh, it's been determined so much by skit comedy and SNL. What what is funny that that's that's what you get a group people think of um a Willino play for example. It doesn't even work. You know the the real what was that called the real the the real uh, Joneses the realistic the, Joneses, the realistic Joneses, Joneses right. which was, again was a comedy. Was it? I, I think so. Wasn't it? I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> but I mean, I think that it's it's fragmented in a way that does. There is no genre anymore. You, the, you guys are so deep, like Terry. You, you you're talking about like the meaning of life, and you're talking about genre, and, and all I can think is like. Okay, can we pull off vomiting on stage now? That's funny. Yeah, but you know, look, good, good old-fashioned comedy really is about life. What's Frasier about? Frasier is about how people get along every day. And that team of creative artists was putting on a 30-minute play every week that was mm-hmm. as good as any stage comedy. And some of them have actually done stage work and proved that they really know what they're doing in that area. Uh, that was where the energy was going in the, the 70s and 80s and 90s, I think. And now we're trying to figure out how are you funny in an age where, uh, for one thing, people really feel that a lot of things aren't funny anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet they're it, aching to laugh. Desperately. They are. Desperately. It, it feels, you know, it's interesting. It feels like we can all agree on what's dramatic or we can mostly agree on dramatic, but, but like nobody can agree on what's funny. I'll tell you something I'll never forget. I think it was two weeks after 9-11. I went to the film forum and saw Buster Keaton's The General. You never saw a room full of people who were so desperate to laugh. And it was like it was like the bursting of a boil that night. I will remember that as I long as I about, live. But look, look, look at last season. You had the Tony winning book of a musical was by Robert Horn. Mm-hmm. A very, to me, my mind, a very funny script oh, for a musical that didn't do well. Totally agree. I, yeah. Uh, I don't know, you know, I mean, people, and if you've got, you know, also I think, you know, social media plays a part in this. People, you know, it's the sense of humor that sort of dominates now younger culture is, as you say, it's a very caustic, sour kind of comedy. It's It's also hit and run. It's on, get on, get off, one funny line. Uh, People don't, (laughs) and also we're all so sensitive. Yeah. You know, we're all such... We're so fragile about what we'll laugh at. Well, that's, you never yeah. know what toes you're stepping on. And, you know, comedy requires a certain amount of danger. You've got to feel like you're not sure what's going to happen. But I feel like it is, not, it is not compatible with fear, right? with, with being cautious about what you but can say. But don't you think if you do a bridesmaids type thing, I keep using bridesmaids because that to me is a movie that was that really gathered a lot of people. It was a very unifying movie. It did really well. So I'm not saying we need to do a stage version of Bridesmaids, although that could be funny. Mm-hmm. But something like that. And I, I, what, I mean, there's tons of film comedies, tons of them. Why can't there be like a kind of odd Why couple, can't... not the odd couple, but a kind of odd Let's couple? Let's say it this way. Why can't Tina Fey write a, a stage comedy? Oh, my God. Can you imagine? I would love Tina to see Tina Fey, that. write a stage comedy. This is like a call I think now. that's, you know, it, and it encompasses, you know, the rise of women, get a woman to produce it, you know, let's, let's get that done. I mean, you could very well imagine a, a two-hour version of Kimmy Schmidt, because the premise is very, fairly easy, and it would work. We'd just do two, two hours of it. Just an example yeah. of something, you know, and Mean Girls, the book of Mean Girls is incredibly funny, of the musical, I mean. And you could you could really see it minus the songs, which are which I, I love that musical, so I'm I'm a big fan. But uh, mm-hmm. I think you could it could have been a, just a straight play. I think you have put your finger on something that is waiting to happen, a felt need out there, Elizabeth, that, that people want very desperately to laugh, and as soon as somebody has the nerve to try to make them do that, uh, they will be rewarded. But she's talking. But you're really talking about madcap comedy. You're talking about comedy that has no. That is, it's sort of unmoored from 
uh, from the, the the sort of social sort of yeah, like issues. Just something that, is, that takes us out of ourselves and yeah. makes us... A comedy that is a completely escapist... That's a good word. So the escapism escape, is... I want, some, uh, I want an, es uh, an escapist vehicle for some great... Funny actors. We'll see if you know Plaza Suites coming back to Broadway. Oh, well. Which I remember as I don't think it'll work. Well, my I, don't I think remember my parents coming anymore. back from Plaza Suite, and they had they. My mother was literally exhausted from laughing. It oh was, yeah. Yeah. She just. I remember this so vividly from the. This is like the '60s. Them coming back from New York, driving home, and they came home, and I remember her just doubled over. I never got to see it, but I saw the movie version, which it's kind of static. I didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it quite worked, but. We'll see. That's if somebody figures out how to be the next Neil Simon, and just to say those words out loud suggests oh, what gosh. a challenge that would be, right. uh, that person is going to become very, very rich and famous. I think Tina Fey could be that person. If she wanted. Right. I mean, if, if, it, if, just, if she thought if she was more likely to do a TV show. Right, I exactly just right. think there's a huge like opening there for someone who really will clean up like big time. I saw a couple of years ago, no, last summer, I saw a small show at the, uh, the Wild Party, which is a tiny, tiny little theater in the East Village. Okay, I'm completely blanking out on the name of the show now, but I remember seeing it and liking it and thinking, wow, that's a rom-com. Yeah. Someone wrote a rom-com. You know, it had a meet cute, it had everything. Um, and I thought, why, why isn't there more of this? It's such a popular genre. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, we could go uh, on. Yeah, yeah but, no, I'm, you know, I'm thinking now, you know, maybe that's my way out of this. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Become a comic playwright. A comic More playwright. power you to imagine? you, buddy. Yeah. Can you write jokes? Uh, well, that's it. You, that's the other thing. You don't want... It, see, you can't write jokes. That's what's well, gone. Well, it's good to have jokes, too. You can do that on Saturday Night Live. You can write jokes. You can't write it in the format of Okay, a, can you write funny, not jokes? Can you write funny? funny? Well, that was Neil Simon's problem. He uh, was afraid. He was afraid that writing funny was not enough. Give, so he also wrote jokes. Give me a movie like Cats every week, and I can write funny. <laughs> yeah. I promise you. Okay, we 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 were told that we needed to have a trigger warning if we were oh, going sorry. to mention Cats. I, but it's too late. <laughs> We're not going to talk about cats. Oh. We just mentioned it. That's all. Calm down out there. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Okay. okay. All right. We're not going there. <laughs> we could go on, obviously, because we talk a lot uh, amongst ourselves. But um, uh, we should somehow save uh, our, 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 air, our breath for, uh, for other topics. <laughs> so let's uh, wrap up this episode, number 46. With uh, our usual uh, uh, survey of some notable shows uh, we've seen of late, uh, I'll start with something I saw at the Kennedy Center recently, which is the world, it was the world premiere, they love to call it, <laughs> uh, the launch of the national tour of My Fair Lady uh, with uh, a wonderful cast led by uh, Shireen Ahmed, uh, who is the first actress of Middle Eastern Arabic Arab descent to play Eliza Doolittle in a in a large production, which is extraordinary in itself and wonderful. Uh, not that we have to always. I just think that's encouraging for actors of color to figure out the things they can go out for. And she, I think she, Eric Tucker did that in his Pygmalion revival last year. Come to think of wonderful. it, wonderful. That's great. Come to think of it, yeah. Uh, and a, and an actor by the name of Laird McIntosh playing Henry Higgins, and they're they're terrific together. Uh, Bart Scher, who directed it on Broadway, it's a recreation, essentially, of that production. And I think it actually worked a little better than uh, Broadway, which I actually enjoyed. I enjoyed it more. I just thought the mix of, of actors in this were terrific. And the the actor playing uh, Alfie Doolittle, Adam Grupper, is absolutely superb. Uh, so audiences across the country as this tour moves around over the next year are going to be treated, I think, to a first-class uh, piece of work. Good. That's good to hear. Oh, that's great. I, I would love to see that. Yeah, it, it really it really was quite beautiful. Um, it's something I have always wished I could do and am not able to do, especially since I'm not traveling as much now, is to see roadshows mm -hmm. and report mm -hmm. on them out of town. Um, uh, 
it's it's something that would be useful for a national critic to do. And one of these days, when I'm back on the road again, uh, I'm going to look into it. Yeah, it's actually it it it's, it turns out to be you know, and and the the the. The levels are so of quality can be so divergent. I mean, because there's a lot mm -hmm. of non-equity toys. Not that that can't be good. I mean, sure, yeah. And not every actor is an equity actor. It's uh, but somehow uh, things can get very ragged in some right. productions. But mm -hmm. this one is, you know, absolutely. And Sh and Shireen Ahmed is a star. I'm, I'm hearing good news uh, also about the uh, the Ben's visit tour. I'm hearing the same Apparently thing. It's, yeah, uh, quite good. That, so, a yeah. tour Another... that was restaged by uh, David Cromer, who staged the original production, yes. and that I think was really important. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Terry, I finally got to Sam Hunter's Greater Clements. Yay! I think possibly a month after it opened, uh, I had a, a series of problems, you know, my wife's illness, and also the fact that Judith Ivy was out of the show for two or three weeks, uh, she was out sick. And they asked me to hold and not see it until she came into the show. And finally, they just didn't know when they'd be able to get her back in. So uh, actually, Sam Hunter said, would you come anyway? So I went. And of course, I felt exactly as you two felt about it. I think it is a major American play. Uh, I see it as, in my opinion, I said this in my journal review, uh, the top pick for next year's uh, drama Pulitzer. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I, I'd like to see that happen. But I saw the understudy, uh, Caitlin O'Connell. How was she? She was no understudy. Mm. I mean, that was the kind of performance. That's not a second stringer. She reminded me of Lois Smith. She was that good. Um, but of course, she was good fitting into a production of total directorial unity, uh, a play of enormous sensitivity and thoughtfulness, a play that runs for nearly three hours and doesn't feel like it, uh, never never has a sense of dragging. I just don't understand people whose response to this play has been lukewarm. It seems to me a major event, and uh, uh, it was a real pleasure to talk to Sam, but I hadn't seen the show mm. uh, yet when we did take the last episode. So Samuel D. Hunter, that's a great play. Congratulations. And... Uh, uh, it's still up for a couple of weeks at Lincoln Center. If you haven't seen it, go to see it. But there will be other opportunities to see this important play. I have no doubt of it. Nice. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I uh, recently caught uh, I caught up with Sing Street, which is at New York Theatre Workshop. And it's just been announced that it's going to transfer uh, to Broadway in the spring. Uh, Sing Street is an adaptation. It's a musical uh, based on the movie of the same name. Mm -hmm. And it's... Um, Reunites part of the team for once. Uh, we'll right. see if Lightning and will Walsh. strike twice. Uh, Andrew Walsh did the book adaptation, and John Carney adapted his own film, uh, and he wrote the score uh, with Gary Clark. So it's directed by uh, Rebecca Teichman, uh, who got a Tony for uh, Indecent. And it's set, if you've seen the movie, it's set in Dublin in 1982, so it's full 1980s revival. And mm. it's about this group of teenagers who uh, put on a band at, at school. And so what I liked about it is that, honestly, I mean, I'm a synth pop fiend, so that pushed a lot of my buttons. And some of the score is original, and some of it is actually covers of uh, songs by uh, Depeche Mode. You called it synth pop? Synth pop. You know, Depeche Mode. And oh, yes, Depeche Mode. Oh, Jazz and that kind of stuff. Got it. So the songs are written in that style. So the new ones are really very much... It's interesting to hear, because usually you hear pastiche of stuff, you know, Tin Pan Alley stuff or things like that. But this is pastiche of 1980s, which made me feel incredibly old. <laughs> of course, having lived through the originals. Um, it is our destiny, ultimately, to become old. Yes, it is. It is. Never. Um, so there's things that I liked a lot, uh, but it is very... Uh, Number one, that it made me realize that Rio by Duran Duran is actually not a bad song. Um, but there's a kind of conceptual flaw is that it is about those boys and the girls are really dedicated to the side in such a way that I found it really obnoxious, actually, because it is the rock and roll lifestyle that we're like, come on. I mean, this is ridiculous because it's this all male band because, of course, they go to a Catholic boys school. So, mm. so boys. And the, the main characters are like the parents, very, very second, if not third level. Uh, there's the bad priest. 
And the women are the girlfriend, the muse, the inspiration. How many times have we seen that? And then the sister, who literally is off to the side, playing guitar off to the side. As a, because at one point they had like something like eight guitars um, on stage, which is kind of fun, but also insane. Um, so I, oh, and also a huge problem is that the most compelling character, the older brother of the, of the, of the lead, um, has only one song and it's the very last one, mm. which is a very odd decision when you have the most interesting characters sing at the end, only one song. Right. I don't know how they can fix that. By writing uh, another song. Odd. What? By writing another song. Yeah, but at the same time, there's some kind of, I can see the poetic, because of the kind of part that he plays, I don't know if I want to say more about that, but uh, he plays this kind of older recluse brother who's giving advice to his younger brother who's leading the band. Um, and so he's a kind of fascinating, charismatic, you know, homebound leader who gets one song at the end. Uh, it's very odd. So there's a weird thing that I was never put on. I was very, it's very funny uh -huh. again, but I, I was a little puzzled by the decision to move it, honestly. I'm not sure there's like a groundswell of love for this. I just don't get it. But anyway, the cast you is very know. appealing. They all play their own instruments, you know. My understanding was there was a theater available and they, you know, it was yeah, like that. Really? Is that? That's what I read. So I, you know, like that was like sort of, well, might as well. More power to it. You know, it's amazing. Broadway, you think, oh my God, these things are in the in the works for years. And then sometimes it is a crapshoot, like the timing of having a theater available and a show that's pretty cheap to put on. There's pretty no names in the cast. Yeah. They play their own instruments. So yay, we don't have to pay for an yeah. orchestra. And that's what is it, it is. Is, this, is it this year's Be More Chill? That's what I want. Oh, hey, do not... I saw, I saw, oh, you know, I saw that uh, um, in Washington and actually liked it. Be more chill. Yeah, I liked the production I saw there. Really? Yeah. Anyway, who, who that's a whole it? other story. Who did it in Washington? A little lovely company called the Monumental Theater Company. They are very smart and very cool, and they knew how to do it. They did it down and dirty, and it was the way to do it. I would love to see that show like that. Remind yeah. me, that's how remind me of them the next time in town. I'm yeah. In town. Yeah. yeah Monumental. Small yeah. Washington They're really, really a smart young company. Anyway. Uh, so much to talk about. Sing I Street know. Us Out, Elizabeth. <laughs> I know, right? Well, on that note. <laughs> Send us home. Yeah. I don't even know what to say after that. I'm like, I'm out of, like, clearly I'm not going to write a comedy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli. I'm Peter Marks. And I'm Terry Teachout. You've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. Our producer is the indubitably stupendous Erica Wong. Yay! You can follow us on Twitter at 3 on the Isle and write to us at 3 on the Isle at gmail.com. Soul spelled out, 3 on the Isle. Uh, please let us know uh, what you'd like to hear. Tell us, like, comedies, please. Let's start, let's start a popular, like, Let's petition. I'm, I'm opening the move on uh, petition for, ah, la for laughter. Why don't we crowdfund a, a production? That's right. That three. It's Three that, on the Isle's first uh, Broadway production. None of us hopefully will write. Um, anyway, so tell us what you want to hear about. Uh, and don't forget to leave us a rave review on iTunes or Google Play. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the Isle. <laughs>